Thanks for listening to the Dr. Drew Podcast on Podcast One. And welcome to the podcast. As always, appreciate you all supporting the podcast and those that support us here. Very privileged to welcome Darren Shriver to the program today. You can uh, check out the website, politicsemerging.com, or follow him at Paul Neuro, P-O-L Neuro, Senior Lecturer at University of Exeter in the United Kingdom. Darren, welcome. Thank you very much. Great to get to talk to you after growing up uh, hearing you on the radio in L.A. And here you are in what part of England now? The Sort of the outs- I mean, outskirts of uh, York? No, this is uh, Exeter, UK. So it's the basically if you if you think of the UK as like your right hand, I'm living at the kind of crease at your thumb. Got it. And you've been there a long time, or curious? This is my sixth year here, so wow. really like it. It's a and fantastic place. You're a Bruin by training. UCLA I am. Bruin. In fact, I'm wearing my UCLA uh, sweatshirt. <laughs> I just happened to be wearing that tonight. That's too crazy. Uh, and then you taught at University of San Diego as well. Is that right? Yeah, I taught there for seven years. And just let's get some of the promotional stuff out front. Any books, website you want to promote? Um, yeah, the like you mentioned, my very uh, out-of-date uh, politicsemerging.com. Um, and like I said, I'm uh, on Twitter. Um, those are the, the main promo things. So you caught my attention on somebody else's podcast. I don't know what I, – I can't remember what I was listening to, but I just immediately said, well, I would love to talk to Darren. I would love to talk to him because I, I think – you know, I'm, I'm a neurobiologist by sort of training. How, how do we understand people, the current political scene, through the prism of neuroscience? Yeah, it's a broad question. Um, the, the bigger – project I'm working on is a book called Your Brain is Built for uh, Politics. And it's an argument that the reason that we have the brain that we do as humans is the result of a three million year cognitive arms race to develop this uh, most complex thing we know about in the universe, the human brain. And um, I understand the current political situation through that lens that uh, the brain that we have was built not for you know national or international politics, um, politics as we often talk about them, but the the kind of politics of our family life and of our you know communities and cities and small scale tribal politics. And we're using the same neural apparatus that evolved and has served us incredibly well um, for you know hundreds of thousands of years, and we're trying to adapt it for a very, very different living condition in the 21st century of, you know, 6 billion people trying to figure out how to share a planet. And yet, in a weird way, we've done a pretty good job, right? I think the the real story here at the core is, yeah, it's amazing how good we've done. You know, I just was reading that in 2018, uh, half the world's population has made it into the world, into the middle class. Um, that's mind-blowing. I remember taking development economics classes a number of years ago, um, 20-something, 30 years ago, and you know, hearing about the incredible percentage of people who were under a dollar a day poverty. And there's that's still an issue, but uh, Nicholas Kristof likes to point out that Every day is the best day in history because hundreds of thousands of people are getting out of that extreme poverty. And here we are with half the world's population in the middle class. That's not what I was imagining when I was reading the grim, you know, dire kind of Malthusian stories as a kid. Right. So when you say Malthusian, that's the stuff I was sort of reared on in college, which was there's going to be a major famine. It's going to be huge and it must happen. And then we came up with uh, GMOs. And all of a sudden, literally hundreds of millions of lives were saved, yet the GMOs were, you know, 
shit on yeah. all the time. But, but I mean, th- it, that was a portion of it. But it's also, you know, we started, uh, if you're, well, there's a great measure of economic well-being called the um, Human Development Index developed by Marcia Sen and others. And it measures, among other things, you know, how many kids under five die. Well, if your kids aren't going to die before their fifth birthday, um, you don't need to have as many of them. People were part of the reason we're having these population explosions was driven by these, you know, cultural needs to and expectations that all your kids are going to die. So if you want to have a family and have kids to support you, you've got to have a lot of kids so that the odds of, you know, one or two making it to adulthood to support you in your old age are going to play out. But that and, just and, that, and that, of course, had other effects, which is now women are freed up from being encumbered by this other human body that they're attached to. Right. Yeah. So there's a lot, as much as it's easy to kind of freak out about the the state of the world today, um, I'm a a radical optimist. Um, I I really think there's a lot of reasons to be very positive about the incredible developments we've seen in in the course of human well-being um, in the last, you know, hundreds of years, but certainly in the last like 30 or 40 years. Is it uh, Singer, The Better Angels of Our Nature? Uh, Uh, Steven Pinker. Pinker. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and he's, he's sort of in the same camp as you. Yep, very much so. I was a a big fan when I read that uh, book. So let's talk a little bit about the brain. I, I'm sort of. I, I think I heard you talking about tribalism, if I remember correctly, and and sort of where you know what we. I, and you went so far as to describe sort of why that happens. But I, I'm a little less. I'm more con- concerned about what to do or where it goes or how it evolves. So from here, so go ahead. Yeah, so I mean the the background there's there's some really fascinating work in the in psychology in the 60s, um, 50s, 40s, 50s, 60s, especially after the wake of World War II and genocide and people doing terrible things to each other in the Holocaust, um, that led people to kind of wonder why do we do these terrible things? And a, a famous early example was this Robbers Cave experiment. You uh, randomly assign kids to different summer camps, and um, it turned out that they uh, in put in a bunch of competitions, they do some nasty things. It's a little bit of Lord of the Flies is the way that that's cast. And a whole series of other experiments of that era that that shed a pretty dim view of human nature. We're getting a different picture now as some of that data is being revisited and some of the narratives are, are being re-understood in in when we have access to kind of all the notes and all the details. Well, let's talk so about, let's that, talk about Robert's cave for an, a minute because yeah. I, I know Robert's cave is under attack right now. And, and my concern is it fits intuitively for every male that has been a young adolescent, pre-adolescent male. It intuitively fits our experience. We've all been in those experiences growing up. Is that a cultural phenomenon of the fifties? Uh, I think there's a degree of which that's true, but it's just, it's not the whole story, right? And I think that, so a number of years ago, I stopped watching um, uh, The Walking Dead because I realized it was a completely Hobbesian worldview that ultimately I don't agree with. It doesn't fit the data that I have in my personal life. It doesn't fit the data that I read in the academic literature. And yeah, I mean, sure, junior high, right? There's some definite Hobbesian kind of, you know, life is mean, nasty, brutish, and short, uh, Thomas Hobbes said. Well, solitary mean. Solitary, solitary poor, yeah. solitary poor, nasty, British, and short. Yeah. Well, which of those five? Numbers. Which of those five is it not? Well, I think it's it's none of those. Um, I think that, and I think that that Hobbesian idea that it's that it's all just this, you know, suffering that life is a a veil of tears, you know, from kind of the, the Buddhist. I, I think that that is 
a little oversold. It's not to say that there's not suffering. It's not to say that, you know, there's not a, an epidemic of loneliness. There's some really great work uh, by John Cassiopo on that. I mean, it, these are serious issues. I don't want to, you know, uh, kind of sweep these under the rug. But having said that, um, I think there's also a lot of love and cooperation and, um, you know, we can talk to each other, you know, thousands and thousands of miles away because we've got this Internet that's created with technologies that people have been working on for decades cooperatively. That's incredible. Well, maybe, that maybe is, we're maybe we're th- maybe you and I think about Hobbes's sort of a version of re- of man in nature, as he called it. But but I think he means man without other men and women become solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. That it, he's sort of making the case that we are political animals. Very very much your case that our brains evolved for that, and we we our very spirituality is built into that. I think that there's a there's there's a part of that that is true, but I think there's an overemphasis on the the kind of the nastiness, uh-huh. and um, I so. An example of this is the literature on um, game theory. So a lot of the literature in political science that is focused on kind of rational, um, the a model of individuals as rational uh, actors. The problem with that is that people we experience and when we run these experiments, when we've gotten into this era of behavioral economics or neuroeconomics, um, people don't screw each other over as much as we were expecting. Certainly not, you know, the, when I was taking classes in the um, eight, late 80s, early 90s, I was kind of given an idea of this kind of wretchedness of human beings and a kind of a, a nastiness of human beings and a selfishness of human beings. And it turns out that that doesn't actually fit the data so well, um, that people are much nicer than we would expect. There's, again, not to say there's not a lot of, you know, suffering and a lot of people doing mean things, but... We cooperate far more than um, I think we give ourselves credit for. Um, Adam Smith said, man desires not only to love but to be lovely. In other words, to be seen by others. And he also said – I'm paraphrasing – that man has a peculiar preoccupation with the well-being of other people. Yep. And, and that's all true, right? That's all. We, so yep. we're sort of both, right? We're sort of sometimes it, not so great, and, but sometimes great. Exactly. And I think that, you know, Adam Smith is a great case. So, you know, his wealth of nations is kind of hyped up. And, you know, when I, I give lectures on this on a regular basis, I'll re I'll raise Adam Smith and just, you know, what do you what do you know about Adam Smith? And the few students who will, you know, kind of chime in on that, um, they'll be like, oh, yeah, wealth of nations. But they don't remember they don't they've never heard of his theory of moral sentiments, which is, as you're saying, this kind of this view of us having this affective life that is intertwined with others and that is and that's the book that adam smith was working on uh you know to his deathbed he started it in his 20s and was you know wrapping that up you know and we're still working on it um as at the end of his life because he thought that was his more important work this idea that we have this what he called fellow feeling and the some of the brain imaging experiments that i've done show evidence of that kind of fellow feeling motivating our decisions rather than um you know just this kind of this this kind of brain is computer metaphor that is i think a very dated um and mis and 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 inaccurate way of understanding human nature we're not just calculators right and so whenever people talk about ai i I always make the case that you you can never have human intelligence because you have to have a body first because our autonomic nervous system is feeding untold information and then the fact that our we'll talk about the scans and what part of the brain we're talking about here 
So for the the last study that I was mentioning on um, fellow feeling, we did a it, a colleague of mine developed what we call the the Robin Hood game. So you're given an opportunity, you're interacting with three other people, and you're seeing different distributions of income. You know, some in some cases everybody's got the same resources. In some cases, some people are really wealthy and some are poor. And you're then given the chance to spend your say you have like 20 monetary units, you can spend a, 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 a pound in order to make the other person uh, three pounds richer or three pounds poorer, you lose that pound. So you know, you don't get that money from them, or you know, it's not a loss to you, just the mechanisms of the game. And it turns out that quite a number of people uh, pay to create a more equal society. They're willing to pay out of their own pockets when they see somebody who's really not got very many uh, much money or they've seen somebody who's gotten a ton of money. They're way, willing to pay out of their pocket to take uh, the rich down, uh, you know, take from the rich and give to the poor. And that's, you know, really surprising given, you know, typical rational choice models. And these are all anonymous games and they're all, you know, you don't know who you're playing with. You've never, you have no interaction other than there's, you know, person A, person B, person C. Um, and we're scanning your brain while you're doing these experiments. And we find activity in the um, insert cortex. And a, this is a part of the brain that is not at the, the outer edge of the brain. It's kind of more towards the interior a little bit. And it's involved in, a series of phenomena that are known as uh, interoception. So when your stomach's grumbling a little bit or you can feel your heart racing, that's you feeling your internal feelings. And it turns out that, um, this, that some of the same regions in the brain that are active when you're feeling your stomach a little you know, turned off are also active if you see somebody else who's feeling ill. And I illustrate this when I give public lectures by pretending to vomit. And I've, I've gotten really good at it to the point that <laughs> I freak the audiences out by <laughs> making disgusting noises. And, you know, a number of people like you can see the, dis the utter disgust on their face as their stomachs are turning in a kind of empathy, sympathy with me doing that. And it turns out that part of the brain that's activated as I'm looking like I'm going to vomit and somebody else is then feeling that fellow feeling, as Adam Smith um, describes it, that same part of the brain is activated for some people, not for everybody, during these situations as they encounter the, the choices about inequality. And so it how looks we, How do we like, know that's not just envy? So we can't rule out everything, but what we can rule out, we can rule out altruism. And we, envy doesn't really fit the data in the sense that they're, they're also giving to the poor. So that would be – But that's to relieve you know, them from their guilt at acting out their envy. Maybe. It, it, I mean there's you – know, this is the challenge with brain imaging data, right, yeah, is yep. what we call the reverse inference problem. We know this part of the brain is activated under these circumstances. Um, what that exactly means is much more challenging. We've ruled I'm out – I'm going to bet – I don't know this data, but I'm going to bet it's activated during the, uh, the, the trolley uh, stuff, right? So the, the challenge with the insular cortex in particular for a reverse inference is it's yeah. activated in like 30% of all brain imaging studies. Right. So it's activated a lot right, right. Um, in a whole bunch of different conditions. Um, what is interesting is that we could also look at the pattern of activation and then see how much – to what degree does that correlate with – other things we're interested in. Mm -hmm. um, so we're interested in out-of-scanner behavior. And it turns out that the level of activity in that area corresponds to level to when they play that game 
um, when they're not being brain scanned, it also matches that behavior. So it's not just kind of we've selected the voxels and the, the parts of the brain to analyze and, and kind of mine the data to get this result. It also turns out to predict self-reported levels of egalitarianism quite well. Well, I was going to say, I, the, in terms of egalitarianism, I always sort of associate more of those kinds of human motions with the anterior cingulate. Is that, is that operating as well? In this study, it's not showing up. The anterior, it's, it's really the anterior um, insular cortex was so the one that was vent, Ventromedial prefrontal cortex area, sort of. Uh, I mean, it's a distinct um, – so the, the medial pre- prefrontal cortex is, again, part of that uh, prefrontal lobe area. Yeah. This is more inside the brain yeah. than the prefrontal lobe. Got it. So deeper. Yeah, yeah, deeper. It's deeper stuff. Yeah, it's deeper physiologically, deeper, um, you know, more uh, closer to limbic yeah. stuff. And, and, and in te- like I said, that interoception, usually that feeling your own feelings kind of stuff. Yeah, I feel like the insula is really going to be – we may have the decade of the insula coming up one of these days because I, I feel like that's where all the bodily-based information is sort of – noted you know the amygdala yeah. and the insula sort of see all that and go now what do we do with this yeah exactly uh, and, and we deal with it all the time in chronic pain and trauma and that's all not working right for some reason yeah. we don't really know what that means well very, very interesting but i i want to get back to the sort of the robber's cave and the tribal stuff yeah and, and talk more about that but and, and I, I just it, i'm just concerned about that that's the thing that sort of i spent a lot of time thinking about and it, it, it we just keep going down further down that rabbit hole it seems so I think that so the the most modern and kind of the data that we're we're 100 sure this works because it's been replicated lots and lots of times in a whole bunch of different ways. Um, that is so Robert's Cave started off and it is a is a kind of principle. It was saying you don't need centuries of conflict in order to lead to people doing you know uh, group type you know group and you know in group out group dynamics. You don't need you know for there to be a five hundred year history or a, you know wars or the civil war or whatever. Um, it, it led to what's known as the minimal group paradigm, and as that got more and more extreme, well, uh, explain that because that that got crazy. Yeah. That data. Yeah, so that's it's really fascinating. So one example was it uh, one of the buildings at UCLA where the psych building was. Um, they would have you know somebody's walking towards the uh, the the the, the, pers- the undergrad's been recruited to participate in the experiment. They're going to go to the eighth floor of the building, and as they're walking towards it, uh, somebody else is already in the elevator. They join them, and then there's a third person that's farther away, and there's kind of a, a manipulation of how far they are and all sorts of other variables to see. Okay, do you and I now that we're in the elevator together? I've never met you before do we hit the close button or do we just kind of wait for them and keep and hit keep hitting the open button for this person who's coming away and there was evidence of kind of this cooperation of us in the elevator against them out of the elevator and then it it got later versions were as simple as i give you know two people a red sticker the third person a green sticker and we see acts of discrimination against the the green sticker person um and there's just example after example after example of that type of i I remember uh, there was one where they were evaluating art or something and there was random dots and you're the you're the dot group or the not dot group yep and we conform. We want to be part, we want to be an us. And we we alter the way that we perceive the world. We alter, you know, we we will even say things that just like, oh, that line is definitely shorter than that, that other line, even though they're obviously not any shorter, they're equal length. So there's all sorts of effects of this. What is interesting to me about 
and, and so part of that is just emphasizing this look at how silly we are and the ways that we can discriminate, et cetera, et cetera. What's amazing in all of those minimal group paradigm experiments, though, um, is so we've just gotten into the elevator and, you know, we're of, uh, you know, you know, we're uh, maybe different genders or we're different races or we're different ages or we're different, you know, all sorts of things that are very, very different about us. And yet for those few moments, we're cooperating. That's really weird. I mean, from a kind of comparative and I, I mean, like comparative comparing humans to a lot of other critters, you couldn't put two stranger animals together and just have them start cooperating. Um, that doesn't happen very much um, in the in in the natural world. And um, I mean, just social cooperation in general, even with uh, with chimpanzees, um, you get two young chimpanzees and you, you give them a, a task where they've got to cooperate in order to make something happen. The chimpanzees are better at the technical problem solving than, you know, comparatively aged human children um, in terms of like solving technical puzzles, etc. But the two chimpanzees just cannot cooperate, whereas the two human kids, you know, just they do so much, even pre-verbal, you know, at a very young age can are capable, not always, but they're capable of cooperation. So I think that the, the minimal group paradigm, the way that's been interpreted to some degree, has emphasized the, the foibles of humanity without seeing in what I think is really the humanity of humanity, the beauty of our ability to cooperate, even though we've been strangers. Now we're putting together, we're in a group, okay, let's, let's get this thing done. Um, Again, there's downsides and it's, you know, there's an us them dynamic that's created and there. I don't want to, you know, underplay that, but it's fascinating that we can also cooperate. Yeah, we have. I, I, I was just thinking about um, where, where people get weird in terms of their mm, – it's really a disgust emotion as it pertains to otherness. And have you ever yeah. heard of the Uncanny Valley in robotics? Yeah, yeah. That to me, there's something in that 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 speaks volumes about the human psyche. So what this is is that as you make robotics more and more and more humanoid, we like them, like them, we like them, we like them better, we like them better until they get really almost really humanoid, and then we're just recoil and we're disgusted. So that yeah. that slight unlikeness, that slight almost me but not me, is something we there, there's got to be some weird evolutionary adaptation associated with just that. Yeah, Freud talks about this uh, concept called the narcissism of small differences. So um, my brother and I, uh, many people when they meet us just, you know, they they do a double take because they think we're, we're really, really similar. Of course, I don't think that we're similar at all. You think you're very and, different. Very different. Yeah, right. We're How very different. And we've got to emphasize our distinctiveness. And I think Freud's idea of the narcissism of small differences is all over the place. Yeah. Um, there's a great book, one of the uh, really interesting uh, books of, of American politics in the last year or so is called Uncivil Agreement. And part of the uh, bizarreness, the kind of, you know, maybe the, the, the uncanny valley or narcissism of small differences is pointing out that, you know, the left and the right in the U.S. right now on many, many policy dimensions don't actually disagree that much. If you look at, you know, so I, living in the U.K., um, if you go back to, to various periods in, in the UK history, you had a real left wing and a real right wing that were, you know, one was wanting to nationalize everything and one was wanting to privatize everything. And you had this kind of swing um, in the government where kind of the role of the government was seen in very, very different ways. There, there are differences between the parties. We're at a moment of polarization. But if you look at um, 
voters and and the the average citizens on a and you give them a whole list of of questions about political issues we're not nearly as divided on policy perspectives as you would think based on the the very heated rhetoric what we're already what we are really uh, divided on is how much we hate each other. Um, the left and the right in the U.S., uh, the Remainers and the Brexiteers in the U.K., there's this tremendous amount of antipathy and that has really led to a kind of incivility that unfortunately is really damaging to democracy and really surprising given this maybe narcissism of small differences. I mean, you know, this is not the, – the, the left is not – you know, mostly, you know, Maoists and communists and hardcore socialists. There are there are socialists in the UK. When I lived in the UK in 1990, I'd met people who were real deal, you know, Marxists and they were chain smoking and apparently you had to wear black combat boots. <laughs> um, this whole cultural bit about it that had to be a real Marxist, you had to do these things. And, and I've not met those in the Democratic Party. I mean, maybe, you know, maybe, maybe, you know, some random university professors in the 60s, but certainly that was not my experiment experience um and similarly on the right wing while again there's you know there are um uh, there are some people that are you know avowed uh the equivalent of what i saw in hungary ultra right wing neo-nazis um those people are present in the united states and i'll say they're not but that's not the typical uh position of the republican party well you know Um, but the 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 difference maybe is that there's categorical condemnation and, con- and containment of that far right, the far left is still glorified and amplified and allowed to, you know, run run, run free with Antifa and whatever they want. And so it's not clear what the left is doing with its far left. That, that's, I think, where things get a little weird. But that's not even part of the public discourse, really. Um, If you or someone you know is dealing with addiction, you know that finding a treatment option that works for you can be extremely difficult and frustrating. The truth is every patient's needs are different and constantly evolving. The people behind True Recovery in Orange County, California, realized that effective care can't be one size fits all. They've developed a comprehensive range of treatments that can address all aspects of drug and alcohol addiction. True Recovery's master-level clinicians maintain small caseloads, allowing them to personalize their care. They offer individualized treatment plans from residential to outpatient, always with a holistic approach and a focus on patient accountability. As patients become ready, True Recovery then offers assistance with life and coping skills, school vocational rehabilitation, that's something that's often left out, as well as community reintegration and support. I've spoken with True Recovery's medical director, and I was impressed with the range of therapeutic modalities and psychiatric services. They seem equipped to handle most cases. Their experienced team is well-equipped. To request information on how True Recovery can provide you with the personalized care you need, go to drdrew.com slash true, T-R-U-E, that is drdrew.com slash T-R-U-E. Hey, if you're looking to buy a car, you're familiar with terms like MSRP. Well, the term you should be familiar with is true car, and now you've got true price. They're not going to let you be bamboozled by invoice price, list price, dealer price. It's meant to confuse. Now what you want is the true price, and you've got that from True Car. You'll know exactly what you'll pay from the car you want, including fees and accessories. All that from wherever you are, from your phone, from your computer, wherever you happen to be. And True Car dealers know that you are looking for a competitive price, so they do tend to set them competitively. 
And you know that true price is a great price because you learn about the scatter of prices in your area. You see True Car offers you that. Then you lock in a price and you lock in that true price, including fees and accessories. You're locking in an actual vehicle on a True Car certified dealer's lot. So when you're ready to buy new or used, visit True Car and enjoy a more confident car buying experience. Some features not available in all states. If you like my show, you're going to love Mama Said with Jamie Sigler and Jenna Paris. On the new Lady Gang Network on Podcast One, join actress Jamie Lynn Sigler and musician Jenna Paris as they use their experience in motherhood to help you confess your mommy sins and, of course, realize you're not alone and feel like you're killing the mommy game. Download Mama Said every Wednesday on Podcast One or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. The other thing, back to the back to the uh, the um, Uncanny Valley, do you think one of the theories, there, there are three or four good theories out there about where it came from, but one of them was that it's a something about infectious disease and contamination. That, yeah. that, that's, that's a very primitive sort of a reaction to a sense of potential for content, contamination. I, and I think that instinctively seems kind of right to me. Yeah, and um, my understanding of some of the brain act, activity in, in um, terms of brain activation patterns, there's a paper – a number of years ago, it's more than 10 years ago, so it's, it's a little foggy in my brain, but it was something like um, infestation, incest, and inequity. And it was basically saying that all of these kinds of disgust that we have about, yeah. you know, seeing worms in your food, yeah. seeing, um, you know, the violations of the incest taboo or, um, uh, you know, some kind of disgusting high-level social behavior, Um all of those have overlapping uh, brain activation patterns. There's distinctiveness within them as well, but there's pat- there's there's one of the things that's amazing that nature does is it reuses cognitive toolkits again and again, and fi- you know physical toolkits. Whether you know my arm as a human is a is an arm. If you're a fish, the same kind of limbs become you know fins. If you're a bird, it becomes a wing. And there's there's kind of reuse both on the physical as well as in the mental structures. Um, the, the you know the, the the neural tissue gets used um, in different ways, and so it seems like there's at least some evidence that these things are built on top of each other in a, in kind of stages of evolution kind of way. I, I, I want to say that again because people – I know exactly what you're talking about, but that, that statement can pass by without people really getting it, is that, that our brains are not – when they adapt, it's not like they reconfigure and we have a new brain through evolution. Yeah. We pile mechanisms on top of older mechanisms and we have this thing that's been called in the past Jacksonian dissolution, which is – when more recently evolved mechanisms fail us, we drop down to the lower mechanisms in extreme situations like life-threatening yeah. situations. Yeah. Does that fit? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, um, and we see this – I mean again, like the example I used of, um, of, of encountering situations of social inequality being activating you know, areas of the brain that are involved in it, me feeling my own feelings. Yeah. Um, the same area of the brain that allows me to feel my own feelings ends up being later on, um, it looks like an evolutionary history, allowing individuals to feel the feelings of others, to have this kind of you know, uh, interlimbic synchronization is a right. phrase that's been right. used, you know, where my emotional states are connected to your emotional states. Which in many ways, again, makes really complicated that that old that other 
idea of economics of the, the kind of individual rational utility maximizer, if my utility function, if my happiness is somehow connected to your well-being, whether it's I'm taking glee in your, your successes or taking glee in your suffering, um, you can't do the math so simply. Right. Um, and that's why economists to a certain degree have kind of simplified in the beginning of a lot of economics textbooks. They just kind of like, okay, let's look at the individual. But the data and the, the modern understanding shows a lot more, the brain imaging data, the experimental data, a lot of different contexts that we do actually care about each other. And we and if we are in a world where others are suffering, we suffer as a consequence of that. It literally makes the math more complicated and almost undoable, yeah, right? Yeah. Well, and, and not almost undoable. So there's some work out of one of the areas that I'm, I'm into quite a lot in my own research is complexity theory. And um, it turns out you can, with very small numbers, of, if you've ever you know wondered why are in all of these behavioral economic games, the prisoner's dilemma, why is it two prisoners? Why is in the... Uh, uh, in a whole the, the chicken game there's all these game after game after game where it's two player games why aren't there three player or four player well it turns out that you can't do the math for many of these interactions if you get beyond four or five individuals interacting um the math is literally intractable um it's, it's, like, make, tr- it's like trying to solve the schrodinger equation for more than two particles well, or the, the, the three-body problem right? yeah. in the classic in, in physics, like there's a reason you can't do, uh, you know, predict where exactly the third body is going to be. Two bodies, no problem, you get an ellipse, but you get into that third body and boom, it's unpredictable. And that's for fundamental. That's not, we don't have the math yet. It The math says you can't do that. And in addition um, to the the unusual preoccupation that humans have with other humans, there's, a, there's another layer of something that I... I that just adds the complexity of all this that monkeys do in experiments that I think tells us something about our primate human nature, which is – I forget what the experiment was. But if if one monkey is rewarded un, yeah. unduly for grapes, the, the other monkey will refuse to accept the grape for the for yeah. reward or something. Yeah, Sarah Brosnan yeah. uh, was the one who did uh, some of this work with Franz DeWall. And so, yeah, the experiment is that basically you do a task and you get a chip – and then you can trade that chip in for a food reward. And so one monkey is doing it, does the thing, gets a cucumber slice, is perfectly happy with the cucumber slice, um, and you know is, just keeps doing it. We'll do it all day for the cucumber slice. They like the cucumbers. That's fine. Then they see their neighbor does the same tasks. When they trade in their token, they get a grape. Yes. And the one who had just gotten the, <laughs> and the video of this is absolutely awesome. Yes. And the you know he starts throwing the chip around and he, he just, like taps he, it on the cage. Well, but then, then, he, then gets, he throws the the cucumber back at them i don't want the cucumber i want a grape (laughs) exactly and it's just like that sense of 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 you know this is unfair and that unequal treatment is a violation so again rational choice theory predict you know you get your 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 cucumber slice and you are happy with your cucumber slice it's not relative to what others have gotten but we look back at our, you know, ancestors, and it turns out that, you know, our, the, the, the creatures that we have, uh, that we share an evolutionary past with, um, they also have this sense of, of inequality. And, and what's also fascinating, after that work done by Sarah, others went on and did it with dogs and with chimpanzees. I don't remember the details on it, but the, the chimpanzees were much more similar in the ways that they dealt with that uh, to humans under a variety of, of circumstances, even more similar than the, the monkeys. But the dogs were basically like, as long as they get a reward, 
they're okay. Yeah, think of your dogs. Um, they, they're not so much looking at it. They'll take it from the other guy, but they're not right? throwing it back at you. You <laughs> give them a Scooby snack, it's <laughs> yeah. fine. You give them a filet mignon, it's fine. Yeah. You give them a pat on the head, it's fine. If you don't give them anything, they're going to be not so keen. But like, they're not going to be jealous, so, right? There's not that same kind of uh, sensitivity that but, we but see it's, in the primates. But it's, it's more than jealousy. We will harm ourselves to right. express our outrage. And again, I think this is saying telling us something about the world we're in today. Because outrage is such a it's such a currency. It's just it's just what everyone's doing all the time. To me, everyone's throwing their cucumbers back all the time, and it goes at the happiness research too, which is that we can be very happy until we see somebody else with more, and then magically we're unhappy. Yeah, same phenomenon, right? Yeah, and we see this again. This idea of the negative partisanship and the um, what is known also as affective partisanship in in a, a relatively recent phenomenon in American politics, where we just you know people on the left and people on the right hate each other and seem to get more out of the hating of each other than they do out of anything else. It's it's much more driven by these extreme, intense, negative, um, emotional phenomena that are that are pretty destructive to the democratic enterprise. All right. So I, I want to circle back on a couple of things. Uh, you, you, sure. s- you speak in very precise terms, and I want to shine a light on each time you do it so people understand what's packed in. Uh, we, we talked about the chimpanzees and the monkeys. We are not evolved from chimpanzees and monkeys. Right. We share a yeah. common ancestor. Exactly. So yeah. they're evolutionary. We share a common genetic link. Uh, yeah. But back to the narcissism of small difference and the affective partisanship. The affective partisanship is is an amplification of small difference, yes? Yep. Okay. Make, I've been wondering, and it's fascinating. I didn't know about Freud's construct of narcissism of small differences, but it has felt like to me that there was a narcissistic basis to all of this because narcissists get, are very prone to envy and they're very prone to aggression and they're very prone to otherness and, and believing they're right. Is is there literally a narcissism? Uh, is there a narcissistic disorder of small differences? Yeah, I'm not sure if I would, you know, maybe take the analogy quite to the that level of clinical precision. Okay. Um, I do think that there there is this this in group out group dynamic, and I think, um, and I have Narcissist, some preliminary brain narcissists imaging. think black white, yes no, all this way, all that way. That's they're prone to that. I think that there there is maybe some of that, but I, again, like you know, to say that all partisans are narcissists certainly is not the data that I have. Well, let me put, um, let's put it this way: you're right. Uh, that that would be a gross overstatement. But I believe there's been a narcissistic turn. I mean, if you certainly look at the data of the look at the Axis two diagnoses in psychiatric hospitals, it's all cluster B all of a sudden. So at least among under the path under the pathological banner. We've suddenly become more in the narcissistic zone. Now, there, you could, there could be many explanations for that, but yeah. it makes me wonder, have we all had a kind of a turn that way? Yeah, I mean, certainly I, I would say there is tremendous evidence that we have become disconnected. Okay. Um, and so the, the great work by the, um, the, the late great social neuroscientist, uh, John Cassiope on his book on loneliness. And, um, I got to meet him a number of years ago and just, he was like one of, of, I've met a lot of amazing minds and I was blown away by, by him because he looked at this issue of loneliness from the molecular level all the way to the social network data to, um, to, uh, like epidemiology, he's one of his famous, you know, kind of claims uh, was that 
loneliness was as toxic for us as smoking and obesity. Yeah, I remember that. Um, it's it's a really important claim, and yeah. basically, he's showing that we're at this. His his work is showing that we're at this crisis of loneliness. There was a, another brain imaging study uh, that just came out that was reported in The Guardian. I haven't gotten to a chance to read the, the data uh, myself yet, but the reporting was they were using this game called Cyberball. So Cyberball, you and I are um, passing the ball back and forth to each other, and uh, you pass it to your producer, Gary, and passes it to me, and we keep passing it back. And all of a sudden, I start passing the ball to Gary, and he passes it back to me, and I pass it back to him, and he passes it back to me, and I pass it back to him, and you've been left out. So if I'm brain imaging you while we've you know left you out, uh, Naomi and Eisenberg's work has shown that there's activation in your anterior cingulate cortex, a part of the brain that has been shown to be involved in, in experience of pain, um, physical pain. So if I stick you with a needle, um, you're going to have activity in that area. It turns out that when you say, oh, you guys hurt my feelings by not including me in that game, there's activation activity in the brain that suggests that's not just metaphorical. And she got a lot of pushback on that. And one of the great tests of it was, okay, well, if it's really pain and, you know, if I was sticking with a needle, I wanted to treat that pain, I might give you like, you know, some Tylenol or, you know, a, a pain reliever. Well, it turns out if you give the people who've experienced that social isolation, uh, Tylenol versus a sugar pill, they're going to respond and say, oh yeah, no, it was okay. It wasn't that big of a deal. You give them a pain reliever. So that's the background. That work is uh, some of that work goes back like ten years. It's been a, it's an early result in the social neuroscience stuff. So just this last week, they were replicating that with some people who were um, indicating that they, they they did a large survey. They tried to identify a subpopulation of people who might be susceptible to terrorist propaganda and be willing to you know act on that. And it turned out that when they brain imaged these individuals, there was much more reactivity to that cyberball game. Huh. And, you know, I think that that, that, uh, that's, that sense of social isolation that we get, um, feeling like we're being othered, leads then to this sense of, you know, anger and frustration and hostility. And, you know, we're not tied. Um, yeah. And we're healthy when we're tied. We're not healthy when we're not connected to each other. So I immediately looked up his book. Is it Loneliness, Human Nature, and the Need for Social Contact, or Essays yeah. in neuro Social Neuroscience, or both, I should get? Uh, the, 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 uh, I think more public book was the, the Loneliness book by Cassiopo, yeah. Are the essays any good? I don't think I've read them. Sassy, um, is, read he, them is he a, a good social neuroscientist generally? He is. He is the real deal. Yeah, I'm he uh, he passed away this last year, but um, he was a, a super high bandwidth. Uh, Seven scholar. bucks for a hard copy, not bad. I'll take it. Yeah. <laughs> well, interesting. So I, I'm still I'm drilling though I'm 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 pushing you back onto this tribal stuff again. And, yeah. And the affective maybe the a more accurate way to say it be affective partisanship. What do we do? with this what do we do so is it is it is there a solution here i think there are solutions and i think so the the tribalism literature and all of their literature showing you know how nasty we can be to each other um was one great accomplishment of 20th century social science another really great one though was uh the contact hypothesis and the contact hypothesis uh by gordon alport lays out kind of these four conditions under which uh people 
who have hated each other can end up getting along with each other. And I can't remember all of the, the, the criteria, but it's basically working towards a common goal with mutual respect with, and you know, a, a set of kind of four parameters. And Allport put this out uh, back maybe 50s or 60s, um, said, you know, if you can get people together to meet on these same, uh, you know, on this on a, a kind of an equal paying field and in these interactions um, with some ground rules, you can get people working together pretty well. And um, there have been just uh, lots and lots and lots of replications. So this is one of these findings. We don't have to worry about, you know, does it replicate? It's been replicated tons of times that 95% of the experiments that were done um, looking at this found confirmation of Allport's theory, and they were involving hundreds of thousands of people, multiple countries, um, in some cases, really extreme situations of, you know, groups that had literally been killing each other. You bring them in and that's fine. Heineken did a great riff on this. They had an ad um, that I, I was showing in one of the courses I teach on race where they brought people in who, you know, were from diametrically opposed identities and, you know, whatever. And they had them sit down and have a, a structured conversation that was basically the Allport conditions. And it turns out they're, you know, they ended up having a beer together at the end of the advertisement. It's like the you know, sweetest beer ad I've ever seen. Um, and it, so that shows that we are capable of getting together. Um, another great piece of more recent uh, political science on this by uh, some colleagues, Michael Neblo um, and uh, a few other folks, um, they had an online forum. You know, we've we've heard all this about town halls, right, where, you know, uh, politicians were not even wanting to have meetings with their constituencies because they just got out of hand and negative and nasty. So think about that. And then think about like the comments section on, you know, any news article that you might, you know, yeah. come across. I, like, I never read them. They're horrible, right? Yeah. So given that in mind, Imagine you then have a t online town hall, like, okay, obviously that's going to be a train wreck. Like what a cesspit that will be. Yeah. Well, it turns out that it's not. Um, they set some ground rules down. They said like, look, we're going to, we have a moderator button. We'll hit the moderator button if we need to, if it gets out of hand, that here's the ground rules. We'd like people to, you know, talk to their congressperson um, and on this online chat forum. And we're going to, they randomly recruit a, a, a random sample of, of constituents within that district. And it turns out like, People are nice to each other, and they're 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 not always agreeing, but they're they're having civil discourse. Right. Um, so and so if I if I extrapolate from the data or from the story you're telling, the narrative, you would uh, you might argue that social media and media generally is the problem. I think it's a tool, right? So they're doing um, they also are doing these online you know interactions, and they're also doing these kind of things that that are. But it's leading because they're setting up norms around it. It's leading to uh, experiences where the politicians said, oh, I'd love to do more of these in the future. Mm. And the constituents said, wow, I really respect the people who I live in the community with and we can get along. Mm. Um, so, you know, I, 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 my first career was as a lawyer. And one of the, you know, the narratives that we have about juries, oh, juries are idiots, whatever. It turns out when people serve on jury duty they come out of it with much more respect and a positive impression of the jury system because those 12 random strangers that come from very different backgrounds, when they're working together to decide, you know, guilt or innocence, they, I saw it as a lawyer, even in, in a case that I lost, I, I ended up having tremendous respect for the jury because I heard how much thought and empathy and, you know, attention they had put into that decision. Um, we're capable of a lot. And whether it's face-to-face -face or online, 
the, the, this recent work on the online stuff suggests we're capable of that even online. So that, again, lifts my, my hopes of humanity. I was expecting that to be a train wreck, and it, it, it wasn't. Um, what kinds of things keep you up at night now? Um, it might, it might so, not be stuff that you find disturbing either. Maybe just stuff you're trying to understand or solve. Yeah. So, I mean, the disturbing – There, I think there are some really disturbing trends. I um, Before I lived in the UK, I lived in Hungary. And I went. I moved there in 2012. I went there in, first in 1990, right after the fall of the Soviet Union. Um, and the, there were still uh, Russians uh, tanks hanging around. Um, so that was a little bit of a sketchy place. I went there in 2008, and my host took me to a cafe. We're sitting in the back of the cafe, and we're watching – uh, a bunch of neo-Nazis, you know, goose-stepping in black uh, combat boots, Ugh. you know, hands up in the air, you know, Sig Heil things. And I'm like, oh, crap. I didn't know why we were in that ca- cafe. He was there to show me this this uh, parade by the Yobik party. And I was like, wow, where <laughs> am I? And then I heard, this is 2000, I heard, you know, lots of anti-Semitic stuff. I heard racist, casual racism, like all over the place. Political scientists, social scientists, we use this scale called the old-fashioned old racism scale back in the day. How much do you hate black people? And lots of people would say, oh, I hate them a lot. Well, um, we don't use that scale in the United States anymore because people don't feel comfortable if they, you know, have racist attitudes they won't tell you that on a survey is usually. it that or is it just so rare that we don't we're not and i think we don't that measure it on that scale anyways yeah we're not on I that think scale that any longer both of those things have changed right yeah. so both of those things there there is one of my mentors at ucla um david sears has developed this symbolic racism measure that's a much more subtle um measure and what it's the premise of it is that most people actually agree that um that you know that people of different races are are equal. By, by most, you mean fifty one percent or ninety one percent? I like I think like closer to ninety one percent. I think there's a lot more consensus about that. Yeah. Um. You know, up in the nineties. And why, why do we treat ourselves as though it's twelve percent? I think it's because we still recognize that race has extraordinarily heavy costs um, in society. Okay. Um. And I think that 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 those costs are something you know. Whatever progress we're making, I think there's still lots of room to 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 get better um, on that. And so we've made this progress, and it's it's fascinating to see that we have. But when I was in Hungary, I saw lots of people saying these old-fashioned racism things. And I started wondering, you know, was I in the equivalent of Berlin 1937? You know, was this what was going on there? What I have seen in the period of time since then has mostly made me – quite terrified. Here is a leader who has, you know, undermined the, um, you know, democracy has, I mean, he's touting this idea of liberal democracy. He's uh, put, he has put a border wall uh, south of his country to keep out immigrants. That's led to a whole series of economic problems because they, they don't have enough labor within the country. And they just implemented this new, what's called a slave law. They're basically, their employers can force you to work another 400 hours and they don't have to pay you for three years. Um, so there's been a whole bunch of missteps. What's fascinating, one of the good, so, uh, uh, and a lot of erosion of uh, the press, Central European University where I was working has been now kicked out of the country. Um, there's been a whole series of steps of things that are, that have been quite uh, destructive to democratic this institutions. This is all hung- hungry. So within, all within Hungary. Okay, keep going. Um, and within the last five or six years. So one of the shocking things was in the last uh, uh, election, uh, 2018 election, that right-wing Yobik party um, that was I saw neo, you know with neo Nazis marching down the streets be, has moved to become a centrist party. Huh. They uh, they saw the government in Hungary has gone so far to the right 
that um, they basically needed to go somewhere else. And so they've, they've moved to the middle. Um, that is extraordinary. That gives me hope. But I worry about these populist uh, ultra right wing movements and a, an undermining of democratic values. Um, when I got in full panic mode about that uh, a, a while ago, one of the things that boistered, uh, my, bolstered my, my confidence was the, the students I've worked with. I've worked with amazing students that are in all parts of government that are, you know, on the left and right. And, um, you know, I, as cheesy as I do believe our, the children are our future. And um, I've seen amazing students that I've worked with in a, a number of universities that are taking the problems of the future seriously um, and I think are going to protect democracy. But I think that we shouldn't be sanguine about our democratic institutions and our democratic norms. Um, Is this all European students or American students as well? And American students as well. I mean, these are, uh, I mean, mostly I've taught in the U.S. Um, so most of my career until 2012 was in the U.S. But, um, you know, certainly among the Europeans, I've seen the same, you know, characteristics and the same qualities. Um, you know, I, and I think that there are a lot of people that I do think, again, that narrative, of, I do think the world's getting to be a better place. Um, um, I think that in the long run, I, I'm much more optimistic about the future of Hungary than my Hungarian friends, um, who I think are, are, you know, rightly pretty, uh, blown away by what they've seen happen in the last number of years. I, but I'm, that I'm, being said, I think there's yeah, some good trend. I'm with you. I'm a rad- I think both of us, you know, are students of humans and, and yeah. I, I, that for whatever reason, you come out of that study radically optimistic. And if you're a student of history, you, you remain optimistic, right? I mean, mm-hmm. It, it the sweep is in a positive direction, at least for the most part. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I'm like you. I, I feel like you, though. Though I still get disturbed by how much acrimony is going around. And I just there there have been, you know, there have been times in history where there have been some major kerfuffles that have not been good, yep. cool. Uh, even though they may have been justified, they're not cool. And I just worry we're heading to something like that. And would like to see us sort of do what Hungary did and just kind of move back in a different direction of more unity. Yeah, well, I mean, Hungary hasn't yet moved back. The neo-Nazi party moved back. No, but I mean, I understand, but I move back, move in a different direction of of unity and discourse and, you know, freedom of speech and things that we've always valued and sort of get a common, at least a common set of values going again. Yeah. And I think that, there's a there's a space for that. And again, I think that um, the literature that I've encountered shows lots and lots of opportunity for us to work together. I, when I uh, uh, when I was in college, um, a friend of mine was this woman, Gabrielle Gifford, and she was a, a friend of somebody that I was dating. And I lost touch with her years later. She was in the news because there was she an assassination. Was, she was, she was shot. Exactly. And I was blown away by that. And I was uh, part of it was just like, wow, a friend of mine, you know, has been elected to Congress. And it's the you know, first time I hear about it, like she's been uh, there was an attempted assassination. I was you know mortified. But then I, I was also shocked because like, we don't have Congress people shot that much like and I started looking up like, okay, when was the last time somebody in Congress ha- was shot? And if you go back and I, I looked in the like the night the 1800s, there were lots of Yep. of murders of congressmen by other congressmen yep, yep. with, right? cane, with like, canes and, and axes and things yeah sergeant at arms like they had a job to break up the brawls that yeah. became lethal in certain contexts and like so as much as we've got some incivility right now we got to keep it in mind yep. that you know our congress people are not killing each other yeah um and we want to make sure that we you know maintain the the, the norms of healthy Discourse in particular, because one of the, the side effects of that negativity 
is it drives the people out of politics. There's great research that shows physiologically people have this kind of train wreck reaction. They see that conflict, they're attracted to it, but then they want to get away from politics. And the largest group of voters right now are people who are claiming to be nonpartisans, mm, um, who say, you know, a pox on both houses. I make that claim. And yeah, and so the the political scientists would respond to you, oh, you're not really, you're a covert partisan. That's my daughter. Some of my brain me. imaging That's my daughter data. My brain imaging data would suggest that actually there are, uh, and this is study, a study I haven't published yet, but I'm working on right now, that there are actual uh, differences in patterns of brain activity between people who identify as nonpartisans than partisans, and they're in areas of the brain that are in, that are involved in social cognition. Give me a little primer um, on that, and I'll let you go. Yeah, so it's it's some activity in uh, a, a medial posterior cortices. So these are part of the brain. That's identity that's, areas, um, right? This has been connected to basically uh, and Antonio Damasio talks about it as the, 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 the hub of all hubs in the brain where yep. all of the, the parts come together. Yep. Um, it's what dissolves that, in, in Alzheimer's. He, he observed that. Oh, interesting. That's what led him to that conclusion. He felt that the self dissolved because that region was deteriorating so severely. So, um, yeah, I mean, the fact that, that, that those differences between partisans and nonpartisans are found there I think is really intriguing. Um, as as to what's going on in modern politics. So nothing else we can say about somebody's on the right versus on the left in terms of their demeanor, attitudes. Sort of. I can brain image you and tell with eighty three percent accuracy whether you're liberal or conservative um, while you're gambling, which is uh, pretty shocking. And what's really surprising about that is your behaviors aren't any different. The way you gamble isn't any different. It's the the pattern of brain activity, and it's not just genetics. The data that we have is so strong; it shows that it could not match the heritability data that we have from twin studies, um, that the, the, the red brain, blue brain, as we call it in the paper, um, are distinguished not because of genetics. Um, I can only tell with you know, 70% accuracy if I know your mom and dad what political identity you're going to have. And if I know your mom and dad, I know your the environment, I know race, I know income, I know a whole bunch of things about you, and I also know all your genetics. And yet, Brain activity is even more diagnostic, and newer studies have improved on mine um, and can get it, you know, to ninety-five percent uh, accuracy by showing a single disgusting picture. How your brain reacts to that? Back speaking, discussing back to the gambling. I judging by how I feel when I'm gambling, my amygdala is on full fire. Would that would that put <laughs> that me would, in one camp or another? It <laughs> would put you in one camp. That would suggest <laughs> that you're more likely to be uh, conservative. Yeah, on that, and that is. I, I hate gambling, and I feel uncomfortable. I feel like my, I'm just I'm, I'm like. And, I, and I'm loath to give up to the next uh, sort of bet, but I do. And my amygdala, I can tell it's firing off. I can just tell. All right. One well, of the fans. Uh, go ahead. One last kind of thought is just so there was a new study where they put people in a scanner and said, we're going to shock you. We're going to give you a severe electric shock in the next few minutes. Um, and again, amygdala activity, dis- differentiating conservatives and liberals on that, which is really fascinating. Very interesting. Well, Darren, really, I appreciate you spending a little time with me. It's such fascinating work. And uh, is there a particular website that you'd like to refer people to other than politics emerging, um, which you said was old? <laughs> Yeah, it's it's out of date, and I, I keep meaning to hire uh, a, a, somebody to help me update it. Um, but yeah, that's that's kind of my where um, or uh, you know certainly people can write me on Twitter. You have to handle uh, that at, at Paul Nero P O L N E U R. And I'm going to go. That's again at P O L N E U R O. And I'm going to go uh, read the John Cassiopo books. That's my job. It's great stuff. Fantastic. Stuff. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye. We'll see you next time. 
For calling times and topics, follow the show on Twitter at Dr. Drew Podcast. That's D-R-D-R-E-W Podcast. The music from today's episode can be found on the swinging sounds of the Dr. Drew Podcast, now available on iTunes. And while you're there, don't forget to rate the show. The Dr. Drew Podcast is a Corolla Digital production and is produced by Chris Loxamana and Gary Smith. For more information, go to drdrew.com. All conversation and information exchanged during the participation in the Dr. Drew Podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only. Do not confuse this with treatment or medical advice or direction. Nothing on these podcasts supplement or supersede the relationship and direction of your medical caretakers. Although Dr. Drew is a licensed physician with specialty board certifications by the American Board of Internal Medicine and the American Board of Addiction Medicine, he is not functioning as a physician in this environment. The same applies to any professionals who may appear on the podcast or Dr. Drew.com. Thank you.